0: Well, uh, for the past month or so, I've been in a a blues music rut on Spotify, and I came across this artist by the name of John Hammond, and maybe you know him. I I didn't know him, Um, but he's he's, he's an amazing resonator guitar player. Interestingly, he's actually the only artist who has ever at the same time had both Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton in his band. It was for a five-day thing, which is obviously a big deal if we're thinking about great guitar players of all time. Um, so, so, from what, what I gather, in general, uh, Hammond's not a very well-known artist, but, but he apparently has quite the following, and a lot of respect, obviously, in the blues guitar community. Uh, but anyway, I've been listening to him, and he has one of these songs that, that uh, just started to, to stick with me, so I've listened to it on repeat, not around my wife, because she doesn't like it when I listen to songs on repeat, so I've had to do that privately, but I have been listening to this song on repeat, and, and, the, and the title of the song is Get Right Church. Maybe, maybe you've heard it, I don't know, uh, but, but the main chorus of the, of the song Uh, goes, get right, church, and let's go home. So that's the repeated refrain. Get right, church, and let's go home. And and those lyrics stood out to me especially this week as I was thinking through this final section of Hebrews, and they stood out to me because they provide uh, a somewhat uh, maybe abrasive, not not very sanctified, but but they provide a, a, a fairly pointed description of the compartmentalization of religion that can take place in our lives. So, so, it's very possible for us to, to have our extent of religious relationship, especially as we think about church and worship. It's possible for us to, to see church as this place we go on Sunday, get right with God, and then out we go back into the rest of our busy week. So, we get right church and thus go home. We just need to, to get over with what we came here to do, and then we can go back to all these other things that occupy our time. And, uh, well, that kind of thinking about church is no doubt extremely deficient. Uh, we won't fault Hammond for, for writing a catchy song, but the view's deficient. At the same time, it does provide this illustration, a useful illustration, of one perspective that can exist with regard to a life of faith. And, and we actually started talking about this last week, where uh, it's very easy for the faith aspect of our lives, it's easy for the religious aspect of our lives to be just that, an aspect of our lives. Um, Christianity can be seen as just one part of who I am as a person j- just one feature among many features so, so for example uh, I can be a person with this particular job and that's one aspect of my life and, and, and for me I could say I'm a dad, I'm a, I'm a husband I have these particular hobbies and then along with all of that I'm, I'm also a Christian You know, I, I go to church on Sunday, get right with God and then I go home that's also a part of what I do So so it's too easy to think of the religious component of our lives as one feature among many, one one category among many other categories that actually defines who I am as a person. But as we saw in very general terms last week, and as we'll start to work out more in, in detail as we go on now through chapter 13 beginning this week, when it comes to being a Christian believer, to understand our faith in compartmentalized terms doesn't reflect the reality of following Jesus at all. Instead, what we come to understand is that because of what Jesus has done, this this element of worship, this element of having our lives turned in a prioritized way toward honoring God in all things in our lives, that that's not just a Sunday morning thing for us, but instead that's a whole life thing for us which is what the preacher to the Hebrews is helping his audience understand here in this final exhortation section of the book. If, if you remember last week, we looked at verses 28 and 29 of chapter 12, where the preacher really begins this Final uh, instruction to his audience. And and there he tells the Christians that since we're receiving this kingdom that cannot be shaken. So so since we're receiving all the glories that come to us through Jesus Christ and what he's done. All the things he's been speaking about through the book of Hebrews. Access to God because of Jesus. Acceptance with God because of Jesus. Since we're receiving this unshakable kingdom. Since that's true for us. Now, through our posture of thanksgiving, we're told, we may serve God acceptably. We may serve God acceptably. And, and again, from last week, we know that word translated serve there in verse 28 is a key word to understanding what the preacher is getting after here as he gives this final set of instruction. Because the, the Greek word that's most directly translated by, uh, by our English word there is a Greek word for liturgy or acts of worshipful service to God. That's the the, the term that's underneath the English translation, serve, at least in the CSB that that we're reading from today. And and we know from the preacher to to the Hebrews that for him, this whole idea of of a liturgized life, of, of liturgical service, of worship to God, this whole idea has been very central to the truth that he's been speaking about all through the book of Hebrews. Because multiple times in this letter, the preacher has used this word to speak about the insufficient form of worship that was ultimately prescribed under the old covenant. So so the liturgy or the liturgizing of, of priests and their sacrifices, the temple worship, all of that which was given through Moses, that form of relating to God in service, that wasn't enough to make us pure. That wasn't enough to serve us. In fact, ultimately, that wasn't enough in the sight of God to be even referred to as full and acceptable worship. The old covenant way of serving God under the Mosaic Covenant, it wasn't enough to make us clean and fit for this task. However, the preacher says, Jesus is enough, which is the point of the letter. Jesus is better than all of those things. Hebrews 9, verse 14, the preacher uses this liturgy word again to speak about how through Jesus' offering, we're now purified from dead works to liturgize, to serve before the living God. So so he's telling us that because of what Jesus has done, we're we're now purified and freed from guilt before God so that we may live this, this liturgical life. We can live a life of worshipful service before the Lord. And so, what does this mean for us? Does the preacher have in mind that, that through Christ now we just be really, really, really equipped for a corporate gatherings on Sunday morning and we just be really good at our church services now? Is that the, the biggest thing that this is accomplishing for us? Does this mean we'll be, be, be really fit for church on Sunday? Well, well, certainly, that is part of living a life of worship, and that is absolutely true that the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit stirs our hearts as we sing and as we hear the word and as we remember the sacrifice of Christ and all those things. Corporate worship, in that sense, is the pinnacle of our worshiping life. However, we also understand that all that Jesus has accomplished means more than that. What what we see going forward here in the rest of Hebrews is that the preacher is actually going to go on now to help his hearers understand this life of, of worship or, or liturgy or service to God. This liturgical life we now live is something that's not just reflected in one aspect of our life like our Sunday morning gatherings but it's actually reflected in every aspect of our life. In fact, it's, it's it's the service of the living God that is actually a main, or we could even see the main thing that now defines us as redeemed believers, no matter the area of life that we're speaking about. In all things, we've now been purified before God through Jesus to live out an existence of not only thankful praise, but acceptable praise. And that's not just a, a philosophical sentiment to, to be moulded over in our mind, but instead it's actually a very practical reality that the preacher expects for us to work out in the context of our daily life. And so, and so it's the practical outworking of this worship that the preacher starts to expound for us as we get into chapter 13. So, so going forward in 13, and we mentioned this last week, we'll just start to dip into it today, but going forward in chapter 13, he works out how our life of worship can, can exist in categories like, like how we relate to others. And our life of worship is expressed in our sexual morality. Our life of worship is expressed in how we view material possessions. Our life of worship is expressed in the doctrines that we hold fast to, in our view of the sufficiency of Jesus. All of these areas of life are areas now of our worship. So much so that by the time he gets down to verses 15 and 16, he says this. He says, therefore, through him let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise, that is, the fruit of lips that confess his name. Okay, so is worship just singing or speaking? No. Verse 16. Don't neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is what? Pleased with such sacrifices. We live this, to, this life of worship, in to, this life before God in totality as an offering of worship. And, and so it's this reality that, 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 that uh, while it needs to be worked out, it's this reality that we can understand as one of the, the most freeing things we can ever know as Christian believers. What, what, what ambition controls my day? Well, what ambition controls my day? Maybe, for example, in a job that seems at a, on a surface level unfulfilling. Or what ambition controls my day, maybe in a marriage that can be trying at times and I'm trying to persevere in righteousness in that context? Or what ambition controls my day, maybe when material possessions aren't what I wish they were, or maybe they're overwhelming to me, whatever that might be, needs are there and I feel the lacking. What, what kind of ambition controls my day in those things? Is it the, the significance of each of those things fitting exactly into the mold of life that I would like them to fit into? Is that what controls my day? To be honest, often... I slip into thinking that way. But is that ultimately what controls my day? No. No, now in all things, what controls my day is through a posture of gratefulness before God, like we read about last time, through this thankful posture of worship, I now honor God in the midst of all those things, no matter the challenges that they can present. And so so this is critical for us just as we develop an understanding what Abraham Kuyper would call a a gospel life system of working out what it means to live life now based on the fact we've been redeemed by Jesus Christ. Now everything is new as we seek to live these lives of gospel liturgy, saved by Jesus, thankful for all He's done, so that now in everything we do, we're seeking to bring glory to God. We're seeking to honor God in in, in everything, saying that, that His way is supreme. How can I demonstrate in this part of my life that God's way is supreme, His way is right and good and just, and actually the way to flourishing as opposed to anything that might be offered as an alternative? Now my life is a life of worship. And and so it's the practical implications of, of this reality that the preacher is going to start working out here for us in chapter 13. And, and, and we're going to pay attention just, just to the first main way in which, in which the preacher works this out in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 13 today. Um, so, so you can look at verses 1 to 3. Keep an eye on those passages. And in those verses, we have a, a call to live what we'll call a liturgical life. So we a call to live this life of worship as, as we offer our service to God in the sphere of relationships with others, in the sphere of relationships with others. Um, and and this is actually worked out in three areas as you look at that passage. There's love for one one another in the context of the church in verse 1. There's love for strangers in verse 2, and then there's empathy for the persecuted in verse 3. So we have this call here to live a life of worship, offering our services to God in all of our life, and the preacher at this point now says let's narrow things in on one big area of life that we all have to deal with, people, people. And we know we need help with this, because relating to others in a way that brings honor to God, that can be so challenging, can't it? That's no easy thing. There's this, a great poem by Ogden Nash, who I think I've quoted him to you before. He's a very funny poet, poet American poet from the 20th century. This poem is called The People Upstairs. It's short, but I want to I read it to you. The People Upstairs. And if you've lived in downstairs in an apartment, you'll immediately identify with this and maybe whimper a little bit. But just listen to this. The people upstairs all practice ballet, their living room is a bowling alley. Their bedroom is full of conducted tours, their radio is louder than yours. They celebrate weekends all the week, and when they take a shower, your ceiling leaks. They try to get their parties to mix by supplying their guests with pogo sticks. And when their fun at last abates, they go to the bathroom on roller skates. I might love the people upstairs more, if only they lived on another floor. And, and it's a humorous poem, but it's an accurate pro poem. Loving others is hard. If they would just be over there or a little more like this or whatever else we'd, might, we'd, we'd like to adjust, well, then I could, I could certainly love them more. We, we, we understand that experience. We know those things. Loving is challenging, not only because we, we can be selfish in our own caring, but because others can be genuinely unlovable at times. But in our posture toward others, what the preacher is going to say here, in our posture toward others, we have a call that transcends these horizontal realities of relationship and that he's now going to call us to live this vertical life of worship in a way that's expressed horizontally. There's a a priority order of worship that actually governs my interactions with those around me as I seek to to love them well as God calls me to. And so so let's just see how he works this out in these different categories. Verse 1, we'll start there. Uh, In verse 1, he tells us that we live a life of worship before God in the sphere of our relationships, that's what we're thinking, uh, which works out, first of all, in love for one another. So, very straightforward verse there, let brotherly love continue, the preacher says. And and we make the point about a a specific focus on on the church here, loving other Christians here, because the preacher's using language that identifies our, our fellow Christian believers as the recipients of love in this particular verse. Uh, this word translated brotherly love, we know it as, as Philadelphia, that's the Greek word. And uh, in the Greco-Roman world, the term was was normally used just as we'd expect to, to reference the natural affections that, that siblings had for one another. That was just about the extent of the usage of the term. Uh, however, as we read Paul's writings and as we read this section here, we see that the term began to be used by Christian believers in a way that referenced the unique bond of, of committed care That we share with one another in the family of Christ. So, So this family language is actually something that Christ himself set the precedent for in Matthew 23. Where Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says, you're all brothers. Or you're all brothers and sisters. And we I mean, remember, Jesus had a group around him, a group which was otherwise completely disconnected from each other. There was otherwise uh, hardly anything connecting most of them. Jesus' first disciples, they had, uh, except with the, a couple exceptions, uh, very little by way of any natural uh, inclination toward each other. We had, uh, he had tax collectors in his group who, who worked for the Roman government. He had Jewish zealots in his group who hated the Roman government and wanted to see them uh, extricated entirely. They weren't natural family members, Jesus' disciple group. If anything, they were were, were most naturally enemies. But Jesus sets this precedent. Christians, followers of Jesus, no matter our our social standing or economic status or race or background, age, profession, whatever other metrics we want to bring into play, Christians are, first of all, family. And that's the point that the preacher to the Hebrews has, has made on multiple occasions in this sermon. In fact, back in chapter 12, he actually described Christian believers as all having firstborn son status in the family of God because of what Jesus has done for us. There's that plural there in chapter 12 where he says, you know, we, we've come to this to this community of the firstborns, which is an amazing thing to think about, that, that even culturally at this time we know it's the firstborn sons who would, who would receive the most significant portion of the Father's riches. And now he's saying all who are trusting in Jesus, well, we're all like firstborn sons, all of us, no matter our backgrounds or anything else. We're all firstborn in that we're family members who receive the full eternal inheritance of all that God's promised through Jesus Christ, we are, we are part of this family as inheritors of the grandness of grace. And so, and so what does this call for, the preacher is saying here, but brotherly love. These bonds of exercised affection and care need to be represented in our local gatherings. So what the preacher's pointing to here is, is the existence of, of a salvation bond of unity between us as Christian believers because of what Christ has done. And, and, and as, we, as we think about this, this, this compelling reality then uh, flows into a life of interaction with one another in, in a way that, that is bringing attention to the significance of what Jesus has accomplished, uh, the reality now that because we're unified, we're compelled to care for one another as God has first cared for us, and here we are back in the grateful section like we talked about last time. I'm compelled to love one another because Christ in His kindness has done what's necessary to bring me in to the family of God. So, so you see why why our love for, for one another isn't, isn't connected to how particularly lovable a fellow believer may or may not be on that particular day. Our love for others uh, that doesn't have uh, as source even the amount of affection of affection that that I may or may not have welling up in me in the moment, but instead it's centered on this family bond which reflects our salvation status as family members in God's family. That's the root cause, that's the root compulsion of our lives of love toward one another, uh, which, again, uh, works out in, in a worshipful way. So, so, so no matter what differences there may be between us, we, we know this, you know this well, no matter what differences may continue to exist, no matter, no matter what else, we have this bond within the family of God created by Christ Himself because of what He's done for us, And then as I reflect on that, the gratefulness that wells up in my heart, recognizing I've been made part of the family of God, compels me to care for my fellow Christians around me. We have this horizontal love that is really, ultimately, an expression of our vertical praise. Which, which really does start to change things when we think in these kinds of terms. Horizontal love as, 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 as something compelled and expressing this vertical relationship we have with the living God. Because oftentimes, to just being straightforward and honest, uh, whether it's a material need in the, in the congregation, maybe it's a it's a meal to be provided or, or a task to be helped with, maybe it's more more uh, uh, on the lines of a conversation that needs to be had, friendship that needs to be extended, these kinds of things. There's all these opportunities uh, to extend love. And and where does of my mind? Where do our minds first go when those opportunities to love present themselves? Where do they first go? The text comes in, I could use a little help with this, or somebody's on your mind and you think I really ought to engage with them. Well, what is the first thing that comes to mind? Well, the first thing that comes to mind for me is my calendar and my to-do list. These things that compel my life on a normal basis in the horizontal world which I tend to be tempted to live in. And the preacher here is calling for something entirely different. He's actually calling for my relationship with with you, for your relationship with one another, for our relationship as a local church to be governed first and foremost, not by personal to-do lists, personal agenda, calendar, all of these kinds of things, the fact that my right knee is a little bit sore today, whatever it might be. our, our, Our posture towards one another is first of all supposed to be controlled by this great kindness God has extended to us as we realize worship is what we're actually accomplishing in this event of love. As I think about it, as you think about it, the opportunities for love present themselves. How much different would my own heart's posture be? Would our posture be if the first thing I did as those opportunities present themselves was to, in effect, sing in my mind the doxology As I recognize this is an opportunity for me to praise God from whom all blessings flow. As I drive there in my car, whatever it is, this is an opportunity for me to love in a way that reflects the honor and glory and praise and worthiness of the God who's done all these kind things for me. Which again reminds us why gratefulness, like we talked about last time, has to be at the center of all of this. Because if I'm a grumbly Christian, I'll never have my mind going there. But if I'm a grateful Christian for all that God has done, if that posture of thanksgiving is rich in my heart, then what am I going to do but continually have my mind drawn up to the Lord and all He's accomplished, and the working out of that then is a desire to love those whom He's called me to engage with. So it's not first and foremost a matter of my calendar, it's first and foremost a doxological matter. It's first and foremost a matter of worship as we engage in love together, which you do well. And I just say, all this is preventative medicine. You're a loving group. But but we're reminded of that. And that posture of heart uh, and mind can help us uh, remain focused on the realities that we're actually accomplishing as we're caring for one another. This is worship. This is worship. So that's that's the first thing to know. We offer our worshipful service to God in the sphere of our relationship with others, especially as we think about loving one another in a local congregation. Who do you need to love in the church this morning? Who do you need to see this week and just give them an encouraging word? Who do you need to help with some material need that they have? This is this is what we're called to. And as you do this, again, you're living a life of praise. So that's first. Secondly, Secondly, the preacher makes the point that we offer our worshipful service, not just as we love one another in a local congregation, but actually as we also extend love to strangers, as we extend love to strangers, which is verse 2. You can look there. Don't neglect, he says, to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. So, so we have, here we have this exhortation. Uh, really, it's an imperative. It's a command uh, to hospitality. And, and, and there's a bit of a nuance here because as we think about hospitality, it can be easy, uh, especially just thinking back on everything we just considered in verse 1, it can be easy to focus our interest in hospitality on its immediate application in the local church. Um, so, so, so in that way, we'd be thinking here about, about having one another into our homes, and we could think that's the priority of the directive that's given here. And, and, and while that, that is a very fitting thing to think about, and it, in fact, it prioritizing having other people in our homes in a hospitable kind of way continues to be one of the most effective ways we can love one another in the church. That, that's, a, that's a whole sermon worth of truth, right? At the same time, what we need to understand is what the preacher is focusing on here is something a little bit different. And, and, and we get at the more specific focus as we see that the word translated hospitality here is actually two words put together in Greek. It's the word uh, a word for love, and it's the word for stranger, loving the stranger. Uh, and, and in seeing that, we actually catch the uniqueness of the emphasis here. Because what the preacher is saying isn't just that our lives of worship are reflected in care for our Christian uh, brothers and sisters in a local congregation, but, but our love is also extended and reflected in the care for others whom we do not know. That's that's what the word translated hospitality indicates, It's indicate a love for the stranger. And then the way the word is used, both outside the Bible and other Greek texts and and also in our Bible, the word certainly has this focused use on our home. That, that's, what it's, that's what it's pointed at. So, so hospitality, as it's referenced here, speaks to, to receiving and caring for those you may not know or, 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 or you serve them in a unique way in your home. That's, that's, that's what they're after. And, um, and, and with that, I, I did find one scholar's definition particularly helpful just in terms of the, the phraseology he used to define hospitality. So, so let, me, let me read it for you. He says this, Peter O'Brien, he says this. Uh, this hospitality is a concrete and personal expression of Christian love intended to include strangers in a circle of care. Intended to include strangers in a circle of care. So he's saying, don't neglect to show hospitality. Don't neglect to include strangers in your circle of care. And then, and we'll talk more about that in a minute, but the preacher adds this statement that by doing so, some have entertained angels unaware, which is is quite the thing to say. Uh, Sometimes you read Hebrews and you think, he just put one line in there because he must have known other preachers would have to come and deal with this text, and he's laughing, laughing from heaven looking down. Entertaining angels unaware. What in the world are we going to make of that? Um, well, there's, there's, we can make something of it. Uh, we, we think back to Abraham, Genesis chapter 18, and what happens in Genesis chapter 18? Well, in Genesis 18, these men show up to Abraham. He's very hospitable towards them. Uh, for, he washes their feet. We actually just read this last night with the kids. He washes their feet. He prepares a meal. He gives them some bread. Very hospitable. And what, and what, what turns out to be the case? Well, one of them is actually the Lord who comes and refreshes his promise with Abraham, and then two of the others are angels who end up going on to Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham doesn't know it at the time. The outworking, though, of that hospitable action on the part of Abraham that he was hustling to to complete before he knew who these strangers were, the outworking of that was a unique modicum of blessing that he received after, after the fact. Um, and so we can see that the preacher is saying something here. There's a uniqueness to this, because just think, and, and this is not just with Abraham, but you think down through the Old Testament history, there are a number of cases like this uh, that we could go to. And so, so the preacher is saying uh, that there, there can be this unexpected benefit, there can be this unique uh, spiritual, spiritual usefulness that occurs that you aren't even going to know about, which is probably the most important line in that particular verse. What's going to happen if you entertain angels? You're going to be able to talk to all your neighbors about it and write a book? No. How are you going to entertain angels without even knowing it? You've got to get to heaven to, to, to know that even happened to you, right? So you're entertaining angels unaware. So he's saying, just simmer down in case somebody's getting a, a, you know, an itch to write the next book about the angel sitting on their couch or something like that. That's not what's going on, right? But he is speaking to the fact that there could be this unique blessing. Messengers of God come with this extension of hospitality, and we, and we want to recognize that that's there, um, but but with all that put together, we get back to the main thing and we recognize that this extension of care and love that he's speaking about here is for strangers. And as we extend care and love, bring strangers into our circle, we're actually engaged in this act of liturgical living, this act of worship. And, and that would have had a, really an almost urgent level of application for the, for the first hearers of this, uh, of this letter. Uh, because in the first century, uh, for, for those who travel, as, as you know, just from your own study of the Bible, there, there were really very few acceptable options for lodging. Um, local inns were, were very um, disreputable places in all the different ways you can imagine that we don't need to list out. They were disreputable. They were extremely expensive, if you could even find one. And, and, then, and then here are the Christians. You know, the traveling missionaries are coming through town. There's no Hilton for them to stay in. Uh, Christians are displaced by persecution during this time. They're coming through town. Where do they go with their families? It may even be that a traveler who wasn't affiliated with the church but, but, was, but was lonely and in, need of, and in need of help, they could be in need there too. So, so, so while, while the person might be generally unknown, they might be a stranger, Christians we know historically became well-known for the kindness they would extend to travelers in their home. So much so that a little later on there actually had to be some pastoral work done because they kept letting these, these, these charlatans, these, these uh, false prophets stay with them and, and they would gain accessibility to a church because, you know, Joe was having them in the church or Bob was having them in the church or whatever and they, they would be able to stay there and, and, and so this was a guy we might listen to. They actually had to do a lot of work to be careful about hospitality because they'd become so loving, which is a funny, a funny problem to have. Watch the love you're extending, not to those guys, Right? So, so so, there's obviously balance here. We're not talking about having strangers in your home and then letting them babysit your kids. But what we are talking about is the fact that there are people who are in spheres of need, whose paths we cross, who we're called to under the Scriptures to invite into our circle of care. The usage of our resources is to be extended to them. And in that way, we're elevating the task of caring for others from a mere kindness to a neighbor to actually this task of worship that we're called to offer. It's an amazing thing, which has particular application even to us today. There's this hospitality being the mark of Christians' reasonable service. This has implications for us today. Even though there are nice Hiltons that people could stay in, this has application in the fact That we live in a time, we live in a place, we live in communities where people are probably more than anything else, what are they, but extremely lonesome. They're strangers in the place they live. They're lonely, without companionship, without anybody to care for them, without anybody to look in on them and check on them, without anybody to share a meal with. People are lonesome. So much more now, even than a year ago, aren't they? Isolation has had its effect on us. People are lonesome. And so what is this but a wonderful opportunity to reach out to the person who walks by your porch all the time who you just give that, that neighborly nod to, but you don't really know anything about. I'm convicted about this as I'm speaking about it. You give the neighborly nod to them, they walk by the porch, but that's it. I've never invited them up on the porch to sit with me. Right? Never invited them into a circle of care where I might be able to uh, provide an encouraging word or better yet, even speak directly about the love that's there for them in Christ. And so this this posture of of worship under God, this loving the stranger, this is something that we want to be very mindful of, especially as we remember Jesus' own words in Matthew 10. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 10? He says, I was hungry. He says this about his disciples. I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a what? I was a stranger, and you took me in. They didn't give him a theological exam before they took him in. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, you clothed me, I was sick and you took care of me. Tangibly caring for those whose paths we cross. So inviting them in and loving the stranger is very much Christ-centered service. So much so, and we see why this is worship, so much so Jesus actually identifies Himself as the one being served when we extend that kind of service to others. No wonder this is a worship category. We're serving the Lord Christ as we extend this kind of love. So, so I, I just check myself by this. I ask you the question, what stranger do I need to invite into my home? What stranger do you need to invite into your home, right? What strangers do we need to invite into our worshiping community, into our home groups, into our summer activities? Is, is there a stranger right now who's, who's known only because you can recognize their face, but you don't really know anything about them at all? Is there somebody even right now in your mind who you could be inviting in? We need to be mindful of this. I can think of the person who walks by my porch with great regularity who I nod to but I've never really spoken with. How could I be engaging that person in a profitable, loving, worshipful way? I don't even know if they're lonely or not. I've never asked them. I should ask them. You can ask them. Are you lonely? Do you want to come sit on the porch for a while and talk about it? And if they think you're weird, that's fine. They'll be somebody else. It's, just keep at it. But this is part of the way our worship of God takes shape, both for loving one another and extending that kind of love to the to the strangers around us. This is how we worship. And then just one more thing here in verse 3. Uh, we not only have the love for one another and then the love for the stranger, but in verse 3 we actually have um, our service to God offered in the sphere of, of empathy for the persecuted. Empathy for the persecuted. Um, empathy, you, you know this, but empathy is that quality of, of personally Um, identifying with the experiences of others. That's what empathy is. And and that's what's called for here, particularly in the context of of Christians who are enduring maltreatment. If if you just look at how it's worded in verse 3, remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them and the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. Actually, in, in the Greek text, it says as though you were suffering in body. So in other words, as though it were you sitting there suffering like they're suffering. Um, for for the the first audience of Hebrews, again, this would be extremely close to home because we know for back in chapter 10, verse 34, that that they had actually historically sympathized with those who were in prison because of their commitment to Christ. So so this is something these believers had been doing. They have context for immediately doing it. And they're called to continue on in that kind of thing. They're called to identify with those who are mistreated for the gospel as if they were experiencing it. Personally, we think of how some had lost their property uh, because of Christ. Uh, These believers are called to engage with them in a way that actually reflected their own concern for self as extended to others, which of course is exactly what we would expect from followers of Jesus. We're loving others uh, just as we uh, would love ourselves. That's a primary gospel reality for us. And this was a gospel reality for Christian believers in the early church. So much so uh, that by the time you got a couple hundred years down the road, uh, Roman rule uh, the, the, in the Greco-Roman world, there was actually uh, started to be litigation that required uh, prisoners be left alone during their stay because Christians would come and spend time with their fellow believers who'd been incarcerated, bringing them meals, bringing them food. You could do that at the time. So much so that the, the, the governing powers that be said, okay, we've got to stop this. This is making things too nice for them. Christian believers took this very seriously. They went and they were with them, just as if they were there uh, suffering alongside. And because of that kindness, new laws had to be made to prevent kindness, which is just an amazing thing as we think about the effect of Christianity on policymaking. Uh, but, but, but we hear this, and it does seem somewhat removed, this, this, this loving fellow believers who are persecuted. I, I, I don't have immediate acquaintances who are persecuted because of their faith. I don't have that. I, I don't know. Maybe you do. I, I don't know. The day may come, that we have that, but but not today, at least not at this moment, but but in this, that there, there is general application at, at a high level, just in the fact that we can we can take the. The, the, the critical nature of not shrinking back from those who are afflicted because of Christ as something that's serious. We know this group tended to pull back. Probably they were trying to remove themselves from harm. That's why they were tempted to go to Old Covenant stuff to begin with. So if this person is being, is being pressed in a unique way because they're following Jesus, I'm, just, I, I, I'm still a religious person, but I'm just gonna stand over here while they deal with that over there all the way on their own. It may be as practical as a coworker who you recognize is taking an ethical stand, but you also know going out for lunch with them would align you with things that are very contrary to the career progression you have in mind or something like that. These things can work out in, in practical ways. I think of, the, of a high school experience where I had a friend who was witnessing about, about Christ to this other kid, and I have a, it's, a, it's a haunting memory really, but, but he was speaking to him, and I purposefully just faded way back into the background because I knew this was going to be a malicious conversation. In the end, I knew the kid was going to respond badly. He actually responded very positively, which made me feel even more guilty. But at the time, I remember stepping back thinking, I don't really want to be part of this. This is going to be embarrassing right? so there's a practical effect here of how we think about these lives of worship engaging with those who are truly seeking to glorify christ uh, we'll resist speaking about some of the strange things that have gone on with the pandemic and prison in canada and some of that i want to be careful there that we, we have to be careful that we're actually aligning ourselves with with persecution in the, in the in the biblical sense of the word but these things do come about however with this general application There might be a word of more specific application for us too, even as as it's directed toward the the genuine reality of persecution that continues to go on in the life of Christian believers in our day. So as I I sat thinking about this this week, I, I did start to wonder, I started to wonder, especially thinking about how as if you were suffering in body, as if I was suffering in body. That's how I'm supposed to think about these, these persecuted believers. So I started thinking, what, what is that, how, how should that affect me? And I, and I, and I thought, you know, if, what if I was a house church pastor in China who'd been arrested, sitting in isolation now from my family who was afraid, sitting removed from my church, not, not knowing if I'd ever get to see them again, not knowing if they'd ever get to see me again, missing. Would, would my prayer life look the same in that situation as my prayer life looks right now? The answer, of course, is it would not. It would look much more dramatic in that situation than it looks right now. It would be much more serious in that situation than it is right now. And so then I grow convicted by a verse like this and I think, so why aren't my prayers that fervent now? Because that pastor exists, why aren't my prayers that fervent now? And I think there's something to at least a a modicum of truth in the fact that I'm not actually thinking about those other Christian believers as I'm called to think about them from this text in a posture of worship. I'm not actually considering the fact that this suffering is going on around the world for our brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not considering that truth enough, which you know, which I can prove if you could just see what my prayer life is like. I'm not praying now like I would be if I was in Sudan. So so at the very least, shouldn't this mean that that as we identify, as we think about these things, offering our worship to the Lord in an empathetic way with those who are suffering in unique ways as Christian believers, at the very least, this ought to have a profound impact on the way I pray, on the way I pray with my family, on the things I'm really considering as I prioritize uh, the requests that I make in my prayer life. would Would you grant the mercy, O Lord, that they need in order to press on? Would you grant effective witness as they suffer for you so that they can stand with the glories of the martyrs on that final day? Would you grant the kind of sustaining power that can only come from you? My prayers need to be changed by this call to an empathetic empathetic engagement with those who are genuinely and truly suffering. It's convicting because I'm not that person. I'm not. But I'm called to be that person who's identifying in a sympathetic way with those who are suffering. And, and even on that point, even on that point, th- these verses, they're actually all convicting in one particular way. If we, if we just pay attention to this and with this we'll close. But, but, but you notice this in, in these verses. Each verse, each expression of care for others has, has one thing attached to it that's actually a line of commonality through all these. So if you just look at it, verse 1, let brotherly love, what? Continue. Okay. Verse 2, don't neglect... To show hospitality. Verse 3, remember those in prison. So, so we know, this, from chapter 5, we know this original audience was struggling with, with a number of things, but one of them was spiritual lethargy. We're told in chapter 5 they've gotten lazy in their following of Jesus. And, and here comes these directives. Brotherly love must what? Continue. Don't stop brotherly love. Don't stop that, even, even though it can be so easy when we're offended just to step back from the love that we wanted to extend. No, don't, don't stop the brotherly love. Hospitality, it can't be neglected. Just because my schedule gets full or whatever other thing I can come up with, I, I, am I failing to love the stranger? That's the question this text brings to me. Right? Remember those in prison, those persecuted Christians, just at a base level. When was the last time I got on Voice of the Martyrs' website and prayed genuinely for the content that I find on that website? These Christians who are suffering, when was the last time I did that? So so, so I think through all of those kinds of things, and I wonder, I wonder, maybe you wonder, have I gotten lazy in my life of worship? Have I gotten lazy in the genuine praise and adoration I'm showing to the living God, given the fact that these things may not be present in my life the way we're called to have them present in my life, continuing, not neglecting, remembering, have I gotten lazy in my life of worship? And in some ways, as I sit with this question, I'll be honest with you, I don't like the answer. I don't like it. And, and, And with that, even as we're feeling that, we're driven right back to the source of all these things that the preacher's been talking about. Thank God we are. We're driven right back to the source of all these things that Jesus, that we've been talking about here in the book of Hebrews. Who's the one who purifies us for worship? Is is it the weakness of my prayer life or the strength of my prayer life that qualifies me for worship before the living God for this life? No, it is Jesus who purifies me for this worship and praise God for that. He cleanses us for this life of worship. And then what does Jesus do as the one who keeps us all the way to the, to the world of his eternal rest? What does Jesus do? Well, he calls us, doesn't he? And then he recalls us. And then he recalls us. And he recalls us through his word to reengage in this life of elevated honor to the living God because of, what, because of all that he's done. It's what he's doing for us this morning under the word of God. Christ is speaking to us and he's saying, turn your eyes up again. Turn your eyes up again. In all these things, live a life of worship recognizing that God is honored as we extend ourselves in these even sacrificial ways at times. And and we say, what do we say? But forgive forgive me, Lord, for my life of lazy praise. Help me live a life of effective and continual and and not neglecting and remembering kinds of worship. So we say these things. And And then we can sing, take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to Thee. And these lyrics are wonderful. Take my what? Take my Sunday morning from 10 to, you know, thereabouts? No. Take my moments, my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. It's a good theology of worship right there. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. And so we do. Love for one another. Who do you need to love in the congregation? Love for the stranger. Who do you need to invite into your circle of care? And empathy for the persecuted. Who do we need to, at very least, be uniquely praying for and calling on God to extend His mercy? And in these ways, again, we're compelled to live a life that follows Jesus, who is the King, who is the Redeemer, who is the one who ultimately brings us through. And so we're thankful for the reminder from His Word this morning. Let's pray. So, Father in Heaven, we ask that uh, these things would just be true for us, that we would love one another well, We ask that we would love the stranger well, that opportunities for both of those things would be plain and clear to us and we would act on them. We also pray, Father, that you would give us a a, a genuine heart of empathy for those who are persecuted, maybe in in, in less um, less difficult ways near to us and certainly in the far more difficult ways that are represented in the world around us. We pray, Father, that we would have hearts that identify with those who face deep and significant maltreatment and may that be at least reflected in our prayers. May it be reflected in our prayers and may it be reflected in our actions too. We pray for opportunities there. We ask these things in Jesus's name. Amen.